Is this on? How about now? Welcome to this memorial service for Howard Pryor. I'll open us with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing that you brought into our lives through the personal life of Howard Pryor and through his service as an elder and believer's chapel. We're gathered here to remember his life and service as he lived it among us, as you worked in him to will and to do of your good pleasure. You've done a mighty work in him and we praise you and thank you for that. We thank you that he is now rejoicing in your presence. We ask for your blessing on this memorial service and that it will be carried on in a manner that will honor Howard Pryor and that will glorify your name. We ask that you will comfort his family and friends with the promised hope of the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ and that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus when the bodies of the dead in Christ will rise first and those believers who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort us with these words, we pray. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Howard Pryor, 98, of Richardson, Texas, entered into the presence of the Lord on December 25, 2020. He was preceded in death by his high school sweetheart and wife of 71 years, Anne McMinn Pryor, and by his beloved granddaughter, Amanda Navarro. Howard was born on November 24, 1922, to parents Earl and Nettie Pryor. After graduating as a valedictorian of Guthrie High School, he attended the United States Naval, Naval Academy, graduating in the top 100 of his class of, one, of 1,100. Howard served in World War II aboard the aircraft carrier USS Lexington. After his discharge, he attended the Dallas Theological Seminary. He received a master's degree from the University of Oklahoma and later a second master's degree from SMU. Although Howard worked until retirement as an engineer, his love, first love was serving the Lord. He was one of the founders of Believer's Chapel in Dallas and is remembered by family and friends for his steadfast commitment to the Lord and for his love and study of the Word of God. A loving father, Howard is survived by daughters Carol Chester and Janie Navarro, and son-in-law Gerald Chester. Howard loved his role as papa to granddaughters Lisa Chester Bibawi and Chester Hurley, Caroline Navarro, Palomares. In addition, he enjoyed his eight great-grandchildren, Gabriel Bibawe, Nathaniel Bibawe, Leo Hurley, Lauren Hurley, Adrian Garcia, Alex Garcia, Sophie Garcia, and Mila Pulmarez. I just want to add a few words about Howard Pryor's association with Believer's Chapel. It pleased the Lord in 1962 through Howard Pryor and three other men, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, 
James Y. Dean and Dr. Howard Mims, Harold Mims, to establish Believer's Chapel. They determined that this congregation was to be organized, operated, governed, and guided by the, by the New Testament's principles concerning the local church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. In the way that Paul organized local churches that resulted from his preaching on his three missionary journeys and as described in his epistles. The oversight of the congregation is to be a multiplicity of elders assisted by a group of deacons. The two ordinances of the local church is to be baptism, which is the confession of faith in Christ and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was to be every Lord's Day as a remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ giving his body and shedding his blood for the sins of his people. And at the Lord's Supper meeting, there is to be an opportunity for gifted men to speak as led by the Holy Spirit. They believing in the authority and sufficiency of the scripture, they emphasize the preaching of the word and giving application of it for the congregation as a whole and for the individual members personally, while depending upon the Holy Spirit to make it effective and seeing that the word going forth would not return to God void, but would accomplish that for which it was sent. These four men acted as the original elders of the congregation. Howard Pryor faithfully served as an elder for 35 years, after which he retired as elder emeritus at the age of 75. He took very seriously his service as an elder. He taught Bible classes, and the home of Serban and Anka Constantinescu for several years. He regularly visited persons that were sick and in the hospital and comforting them in their afflictions. <clears throat> he had the ability of listening to and observing individuals in the congregation and discerning the gifts they had and encourage them to use their gifts for the benefit of the congregation. He also could correct and administer discipline when the occasion required it. He served the congregation in many ways, but he never engaged in self-exaltation. He was a very humble man. In his personal life, he lived a life that was an example of what the Christian life should be. His service as an elder is an example of how an elder should be. Godly, God has greatly blessed Believer's Chapel through his service to the congregation, and we're truly thankful for it. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gerald Chester. I'm Howard Pryor's son-in-law. When I married his daughter, Carol, almost 52 years ago, he gave me permission to call him dad. Since then, he has been, he has been dad to me. Therefore, I will refer to him accordingly in my comments today. But I want you to know he was more than a dad to me. He was a father, a spiritual father. Dad was a very godly man who displayed the traits extolled by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 66, verse 2, which reads in part, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Dad was 
humble, submitted, and he trembled at the word of God, which meant he was very teachable. Consequently, he enjoyed the favor of God. His was a life well-lived, a life worthy of emulation. Today, we celebrate the marvelous work of God in and through Dad. To set the context for my comments, consider Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In this text, athletic imagery is used to illustrate how the Christian life is to be lived. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, that is the author of our faith and perfecter of our faith. Dad ran his race well through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Most of you know Dad in the context of Believer's Chapel, where Dad served for the, the past 61 years. What you may not know is what God did to prepare Dad for that service. So today I want to focus my comments on the first 37 years of his life, particularly the, the years from high school to age 37. These are the years that were pivotal, that prepared his heart, his mind, his spirit to serve the 61 years here at Believer's Chapel. Much of what I will share came from Dad's letters, notes, journals, and many, many personal conversations. Dad was born on November 24th, 1922 in Guthrie, Oklahoma to Earl and Nettie Pryor. His father was a pharmacist who enjoyed steady employment and provided comfortably for the family, even through the Great Depression. Dad grew up participating in the local Baptist church. Academic work came easy for him. Being a drum major for the band fostered his lifelong enjoyment of marches and classical music. He was also the leader of the, his ROTC unit in high school. And after school, he had a paper route. He was known all over town as the whistling paper boy. Notwithstanding the academic and work success, his greatest achievement arguably was winning the heart of Annabelle McMinn, whom you know as Ann, who in time became his wife. You may know that in 1940, he graduated valedictorian of Guthrie High School. What you may not know is what he said in the address to the graduating class. So I'm going to give you some excerpts of that address. Yes, he kept that copy of that address, handwritten copy, and we have it. Recent events in Europe, referring to the rise of imperialism in Nazi Germany, have caused or should have caused every American to do some serious thinking about this country. Can we keep the principles of the Constitution gained by the struggle of our forefathers? Now, these words were spoken on May 23rd, 1940. Now, apart from the reference to Europe, these words could be spoken today. For in his early days, I think the Holy Spirit was giving a dad a glimpse of the future, of how the world was disconnecting from Christianity and Christian norms, and how that would continue to play out in the decades ahead. Also in his address, he talked about the purpose of education. The Founding Fathers believed that reading was essential because each person must be able to consult the Bible for guidance. Though he had not yet developed his passion for Scripture, he had a deep respect for it. He also addressed the phrase pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence. He defined happiness in this way. The abiding contentment that comes from a complete and abundant life even though such a life includes both success and failure, prosperity and adversity, sunshine and shadow, candle songs and funeral hymns. To be happy, we must know the realities of life, whatever they may be. He saw the importance of seeing the providential hand of God at work in all circumstances. Pain, suffering, and death have meaning only when seen from God's perspective. 
After high school, Dad received an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy. It was here that he truly encountered Christ. He knew about Christ, but he really didn't know Christ. In the fall of 1943, one night, he was reading his Bible. He was in his dorm room. He was doing it more out of duty than a sense of really conviction. He wanted to hurry up and finish his three chapters. And if you're familiar with basic Bible reading programs, you know that if you read about three to three and a half chapters a day, you'll read through the Bible in a year. So he was following that program. And so he was trying to read his three chapters to stay on track. And you know, dad would want to stay on track. But something happened that night. Something that he totally unexpected, did not expect, something he could not explain. He said, as I read, I suddenly stopped and was shaken. It seemed as if my whole being was flooded with conviction and realization that God was trying to speak to me. At first, I couldn't believe it. But there was no possibility for doubting. Yet it just seemed so unreasonable to my mind. Why? And it was so unexpected. You see, all he wanted to do is read his Bible, write a letter, and go to bed. And God was engaging him that night as never before. So he went back and read the verse that the Lord used to really prompt him, to stir him. Mark 1.17. And Jesus said to him, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He said, from that moment I knew. And I was determined, yet glad to follow no matter what the cost might be. I couldn't write any letters that night or study, and it was a long time before I finally went to sleep. The next weekend, I told Ann and asked her if she would go with me. He didn't know how she'd receive this. She was very happy and promised to go with him wherever the Lord might lead. He said, I was so surprised. What could God want with me? So unworthy and even indifferent. It was the most unexpected turn of my life. But what a noble turn. A turning to him, a fisher of men. And unworthy though I may be, a fisher of men, I would be. This was really the starting point for his spiritual journey. This was the defining moment in his life. An unexpected encounter with Jesus, perhaps like the Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus. Prior to their encounters with Jesus, both Paul and Dad were faithful to their religious paradigms. Paul was an Orthodox Jew. Dad was a Baptist. Neither was seeking an encounter with Jesus. But Jesus intercepted both of them and transformed their lives. Before these encounters, they knew that the Lord had, they didn't know the Lord, neither, either one, but they became, they joined into a journey, both of them, of learning to know him. After their encounters, they began a lifelong process of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and became lifelong servants of Christ. June 7th. About six months later, six to eight months later, 1944, was when what Dad called his big day. In the morning, he graduated in the top 10% of his class from the Naval Academy. Shortly afternoon, he married Ann. And by late afternoon, they were on a train headed to Dad's first duty assignment on the USS Lexington. That was a big day. By midsummer, Dad was on the aircraft carrier. Soon he met Lieutenant John Streeter, who had been a missionary to China before the war. John asked Dad if he was a Christian. Dad said yes. John then asked, well, how do you know? How would you respond to that? Dad said he didn't know the answer. John then said, have you been born again? Dad says, I don't know. Well, over the next two years, John discipled dad, and he learned what it meant to be born again, along with many, many other great truths of the word of God. 
In addition to being discipled by John, Dad engaged in regular personal Bible study, even while he was on duty. His battle station was the fire control computer of the five-inch guns. These were the main defense of the aircraft carrier from particularly aircraft that were attacking. The computer was located deep in the ship. There wasn't anybody around. He was by himself. All he had was a radar screen on the computer and many, many hours sitting there waiting uh, with nothing to do. And so he read scripture. Over and over he read scripture. The Holy Spirit transformed dad's thinking. Progressively, he came to know the Lord. He was already a deep thinker, but increasingly he was thinking from a Christian perspective. World War II concluded in August of 1945. The soldiers were relieved. Most would return home soon. Movies became a favorite activity. One night they watched a movie with a storyline that included a preacher. When the movie was over, one of Dad's shipmates compared Dad to the preacher. He commented, in 10 years, you will be like the preacher in the movie. Dad was shocked and encouraged because he realized that his shipmates shipmates could see the call of God on his life, even though he had not talked openly about it. And you can imagine he would not have talked openly about it. Dad's spiritual growth continued after the war. As a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, he had a five-year military obligation. By early 1946, the war was over, had been over for about six months, And dad still had three and a half years of active military duty. He decided to seek a release from the Navy to pursue his passion. He had been inspired by John Streeter's missionary work, and dad believed that he was called to China. Therefore, he needed to resign as a naval officer and go to seminary to prepare. On February 18, 1946, he formally submitted his request to resign. He said in part, I'm not offering my resignation because of any personal grievance or resentment against the Navy. My experience in the Navy has been a happy and pleasant one. My motive for resigning is rather a deep, sincere conviction that God has called me to his service. And my desire is to commence seminary studies in September this year, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes." Quoting Romans 1, verse 16. Two months later, he got the response, denied. Well, you know, you can't deny, Dad. So he resubmitted the request. And now he added more Bible verses. Mark 16, 15. John 14, 27. Matthew 28, 19. Yes, we have all those, all the documents to support what I'm telling you here. His superior officer told him that no one in the chain of command would understand his request. Nevertheless, dad said, send it anyway. That was totally dad. In fact, what he said was this, in part. Be assured of my continuing sincerest resolve to perform to the best of my ability my office and duties in the Navy so long as I shall retain them. And then he quotes Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, Work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Nevertheless, I will show continue to petition for my release because as we were allowed of God to to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tries our hearts. 1 Thessalonians 2.4. So again, he's popping Bible verses at these uh, superior officers. His direct superior officer was mostly correct. The chain of command did not understand what he was talking about and why he wanted to be released, except for one person, the person at the very top. President Harry Truman saw his request, and he granted his request in July of 1946. Dad didn't know why at the time, but a few years ago, I'm talking about just in recent years, Dad discovered something. He discovered that Harry Truman was a Christian. And he's fully convinced, and we talked about this even in recent days, that God moved in Harry Truman's heart to give him that release. Dad experienced how the sovereign hand of God was at work, making a way where it looked like there was no way. 
While waiting for his resignation to be accepted, Dad was busy. Dad continued his military duties and his work of serving the spiritual lives of his shipmates. Among Dad's papers was a church bulletin. From a Sunday service held on May 19, 1946, on the Lexington. The order of service was typical. You may have heard this before. The doxology, opening prayer, a couple of hymns, morning prayer by the ship's chaplain, announcements, and then a message. What's interesting is who gave the message that morning? It was Lieutenant J.G. Howard Pryor. And his topic? The accepted time. He was certainly reflecting upon the Lord and whether or not he was going to get out of the Navy. He didn't know at that time if his resignation would be accepted. But yet he was able to speak on time and God's use of time and God's timing for events. From the Navy, Dad went to Dallas Theological Seminary to prepare for mission work in China. However, his dream was dashed in 1948 when the communists took over China and eliminated Christian missionaries. He was very disappointed. And he left seminary after three years. The only reason he left was he didn't see a future as a missionary, and he felt like he had gotten what he needed to get from seminary by then, that is the tools to study the Word of God. And you all know he was a good student of Scripture. He was a good self-student. He didn't need a lot of help. So he left seminary, and he pursued a master's degree to qualify for a job to support his family. In the early 50s, he moved back to Dallas, started his career in the aerospace industry, where he worked for over 35 years. During this time, he worked for several companies and even earned a second master's degree. Now, during the 1950s, mom and dad participated in several Christian communities. You understand I called Mrs. Pryor mom, I didn't mention that. They were mom and dad to me, very much so. And they participated in a number of Christian communities in the Dallas area. They were looking for something that was really biblically sound, a sound expression of how Christianity should be practiced. Unbeknownst to them, Dr. Johnson was also on the same journey, at the same time, in the same city. In 1959, they began to talk, along with the other men that their gardener mentioned, and they began a conversation about what church should look like from a Christian worldview, namely from what Scripture had to say. Many of you know well and understand what, <clears throat> what he has meant to this community this community that came from those discussions, this community known as Believer's Chapel. You've known him. If you've been here any time at all, you know him. He was a plumb line that kept the community aligned with God. As an elder and teacher, he provided godly oversight, was a wise encouragement and sound instruction and faithful care. If we had an open mic, I'm sure we'd have a long line of people assuming that we could get a lot of people in the room. I know that COVID is preventing us from doing that, but if we could get a full house like we would normally have, we would have a long line. So what I'm going to do is try to give you some little tidbits that I've picked up from not only his documents, but also others that have submitted comments, in some cases, oral conversations that I've had with people over the last week or so. So here's a birthday card. They received several years ago from a family he worked with for a long time in this community. They said, we thank the Lord for you and for your life of faithfulness. How wonderful to see people and families who have dedicated their lives to the Lord Jesus in an assembly directed by Scripture under the power of the Holy Spirit. For more than 25 years, we experienced your loving help spiritually and personally. A longtime chapel member said, Howard was a testimony of godliness. Others said he showed us what it means to love the brethren. He was humility exemplified. In a conversation with Bill and Marilyn McRae this week, they said, when we think of Howard, we think of four traits, encourager, leader, mentor, and faithful. He was a godly man, a great encourager to us, he gave us advice and correction, but was always encouraging. We have fond memories of Howard and Ann 
as a team and are grateful for their leadership role in our lives. In 2017, Dr. Mims wrote, you've been a wonderful brother in Christ and your agape love has been unconditional. Privately, Dr. Mims told me that dad was his best friend. And I found a note from Dr. Johnson written in 2002. This is what he said. Knowing you, referring to Howard and Ann, for over 50 years has been a, a very rewarding experience for me. Your devotion to the Lord and your most effective service has been a blessing to me and most unusual benefit to the church of Jesus Christ. Your personal friendship has been a deeply appreciated source of encouragement to me, as well as a needed bulwark in the work of the Lord. You and Ann have been an untold blessing to all of us in the chapel. Thank you for work well done. Well, just as the Christian community has been richly blessed by dad, so also has the family. Here are comments from his daughters. Carol and Janie remember their parents starting each day with prayer. The girls appreciate their foundation in the Christian faith, rooted in a high respect for scripture and steadfast faith in the Lord modeled in and through all circumstances. On one occasion, dad lost his job. The girls saw him weeping, something he rarely did in front of them. They asked what was going to happen. He assured them that the Lord would take care of the family. And he did. As grown women, they recognized the privilege and blessing of growing up in a godly home. They are immensely grateful to the Lord for this marvelous gift. And dad had a praying mother. Some of you may have known her. On his 70th birthday in 1992, she wrote a letter to him. You have truly had our Lord's blessings all the way, but it just didn't happen. You were busy studying, learning, and preparing your life to be useful. In other words, she recognized that he was responsible. He, he played his role. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. She recognized the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And she was very clearly admired her son for his preparation and his faithfulness. Dad retired from his vocational career in the aerospace industry in the late 80s and devoted even more of his time to the Christian community. He was active until age 90. When mom began to struggle physically and they could no longer live in their home of 57 years, they moved to an assisted living facility. Mom lived another two and a half years. She died in September of 2015. And dad lived another five years plus about three months before the Lord took him from this past Christmas. On his passing, the family wrote the following. On Christmas morning, Howard Pryor received a very special gift. Exit from this life and entrance into the presence of the Lord. At 98 years of age, he had been looking forward to this transition since his wife, Anne, passed in 2015. The family is deeply saddened and will miss him greatly, but we are comforted to know that he was ready and he completed his race well. He undoubtedly heard what everyone wants to hear from the Lord when entering into his presence. Well done, good and faithful servant. One of the greatest privileges of my life has been to be a spiritual son to dad. No matter what the issue, he was eager to pray, search the scripture, and seek the Lord with me to discern the will of God. His guidance was always wise, measured, and kindly delivered. I am so deeply grateful for his oversight and guidance. Words are inadequate to express my deep appreciation. On one occasion, I asked dad what his life verse was. Without hesitation, he said Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, which reads, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He lived this verse. He modeled this verse. As a tribute to the work of the Lord in and through dad, I want to leave you with seven lessons from his life. Don't worry, this is quick. Okay. Traits that he taught and modeled. These are things I personally experienced, the girls personally experienced. Anyone that was close to him would have experienced these truths. First and foremost, he told me to connect everything you possibly can to the Word of God. Soundly. Don't force things, but look at sound interpretation of Scripture. Connect your life to the Word. Live a Christian worldview. Number two, the overarching virtue is agape love. Now, that is not an emotion. That is sacrificially serving the purpose of God and others, which means many times doing things that they don't want you to do, that is in their flesh they don't want you to do, but you know it's right. You do the right thing no matter how they respond. That's what love really is. Some sub-traits of love are humility, submission, and teachability. If you're not that, you're never going to grow. Another sub-trait of love is be thankful. Never blame or, blame or complain. That's one of the things that we as the family really noted about Dad is he never complained about anything. Fifth, lead by sacrificially serving the purpose of God, in other words. In other words, leadership by love. You lead people, helping people to do the right things, whether they want to do it or not, they understand it or not, they like it or not. You lead them into truth. Six, ultimate success is not money. Ultimate success is obedience to the will and ways of God. Money is simply a temporal tool that we use in this life to facilitate alignment with God. And finally, number seven was think and act multi-generationally. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what God is doing big picture long term and the assignments that we have to serve his purpose in the generations, both before us and after us. In other words, if you want to be a, a good father, you start out by being a good son, and that begins to qualify you to be that father who serves the next generation. Dad always thought and acted multi-generationally. May the Lord grant all of us who are blessed by him to know, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and to become mature so that when the Lord takes us home and we enter into his presence, we will hear what dad undoubtedly heard as he entered into the Lord's presence. Well done, good and faithful servant. Good afternoon. My name is Jeff Brown. I'm associate minister here at Believer's Chapel. Glad to be with y'all today. I asked the elders beforehand, um, before I was to speak today, what are some attributes, perhaps some things that would add to what our brother Gerald has just said. And it's interesting, the comments were so similar. An honorable man always attributing to the Lord any good thing he received. Impeccable integrity. What Paul had in mind as an exemplary elder and overseer of the flock of God, and most importantly, one with a resolute devotion and commitment to our Savior. Funny, Gerald, you had said uh, you knew him as Dad. I always knew him um, as Mr. Pryor. And... Um, for me, he was one of the pillars here of the church. 
is really the term that Paul uses to describe James, Peter, and John in Galatians 2.9. And he, Howard would be the first to tell you that enough adulation, he would hate it. So I'm glad he's in heaven praising the Lord. He doesn't have to listen to us today. But he really was one of the pillars of the church, one of the last, really the last of the founding elders of Believer's Chapel to leave this earth and be with Christ. And of all things, on Christmas Day, how sweet would that be? And yet, uh, of course, Christ is the true founder of His church, of course. But yet Romans 13, 7 also commands us to give honor to whom honor is due. So these terms to describe Mr. Pryor are appropriate. When I talked with a family uh, the other night about him, I was trying to convey a little bit of what I knew about Mr. Pryor, and Gerald referred to him as a gentle lion. I thought that was very apt. Well, I agree with that, and yet when I first came to the chapel some 19 years ago, I was about to speak for the first time in the evening meeting. He looked to me more of like a, a hungry lion at the moment. <laughs> Why? Because he was serious about the Word of God. You see, he knew two important things that have been lost by so many under-shepherds in different flocks throughout our country today. He knew two things. Number one, the best shepherding he could do was to teach the Word of God. Psalm 138, verse 2, when it talks about re referring to the Lord, you have exalted above all things your name and your Word. And he wanted to make sure whoever got up to speak it would be rightly taught. It would be according to Scripture. And, um, and it's interesting, right afterwards, he came up to me. I thought, oh no, I just, I bombed. What was it? And he grabbed me by the arm and said, hey, just wanted to tell you I appreciate what you had to say. It's from the Word. Keep it up. The second thing that he believes so strongly in is to an old Puritan phrase regarding the love of the Word. And that is this, he who does not disagree, agrees. And he would make sure in that evening meeting, and not only there, but with the other elders as well, that, hey, we want to make sure that what is being taught is accurate to the Word of God. Because the worst thing that could happen is someone would stand up and give something that was false and not according to Scripture, and the people would walk away going, hey, that was, that was pretty good. And there were times that he had to correct it, and he did it the right way, always with encouragement. So, I spoke that evening and was thankful that he actually said something to me afterwards. Years later, before I left Believer's Chapel to move to Oklahoma, for a time, he wanted to grab lunch with me, and I came back home and I said, Mr. Pryor wants to grab lunch. And she said, oh no, what have you done? <laughs> I said, I, I think I'm okay, I don't know. So, sure enough, we grabbed lunch, and he just said, I just wanted to encourage you as you leave and, uh, and go pastor in Oklahoma. And thanks for all you've done. It was nothing but encouraging. And yet exhortive as well. And I appreciated that very much from him. So, uh, my message now is just really my aim is to take a few moments to provide comfort in a time of loss. Secondly, we're all going to die someday. It really is worth thinking about according to Ecclesiastes. Better to go to, to a house of mourning than the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. So, let's talk about it, shall we? Five facts. Five facts about death for every believer, along with the Scriptures, to back that up. Number one, for a believer, our death. Our death is the plane flight whereby God brings us to heaven. John 17, 24, Jesus prays in the garden, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, Two things, may be with me where I am. And number two, to see my glory that you have given me before, rather because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Gerald, Carol, Janie, all the kids and grandkids, great-grandkids, this is what the Lord prayed for, that Mr. Pryor would be with him, as we would one day be with him as well, to behold his glory, to be with him, and that's exactly what happened on December 25th of this past year. Luke 23, 34, Jesus can look at the, one of the prisoners, rather one of the men crucified with him, and says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
today. It is real. Dwight L. Moody, 19th century evangelist, said, Someday you will read in the papers that Dwight L. Moody has died. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I will be more alive than I am at this moment. Number two, for a believer, death is a release from suffering. Philippians 1.23, Paul can say, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Have you thought about what he means by far better? He's saying it is better to be in a disembodied state, as the angels are, never as an angel, but as the angels are, with Christ. That's better than to be here in this earth, on this earth, with this body that we currently have. I don't know about you, but I've uh, hmm, got nervous about death in the future because I thought I've never been out of this body. It just, you know, you kind of want to take it with you. Trust me, you don't want to take it with you. You get a new one in the future. And Paul can say it's better actually to be with Christ than to be here on this earth. Uh, rather, Revelation 21.4 says that Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, there's no more suffering for Mr. Pryor. He's breasted the tape. He's done. And yet for us, we mourn and we suffer. And yet a day is coming when there will be no more suffering for his family, for friends, for all who are in Christ. Ever, ever will there be suffering. No more. This is it. He's crossed the tape. You and I, we travel on. Number three, for a believer, death is a reunion with Christian loved ones and being face to face with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9, I want you to note a singular word that's only mentioned in this passage in the New Testament. I think you'll pick it up because it's used three times. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, but we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. You caught it. But of course, to be of good courage is so important because what? We will be at home with the Lord because right now we're absent Absent. It's, it's this interesting Greek word, ek, uh, ek demeo. It's a really combination of two words, ek meaning from or out of, and then the second half of the word is demos, which is a population or a people. And so it's like Paul is writing to each of us and saying, you are away from your people right now. You are away, or as the verse says, you are away from home. There's something about the holidays that we think about home and provides for us, perhaps many of us, cheer, a bit, a bit of sadness when we consider those that are no longer there. But you can note this today. If you are in Christ, yes, you have the Spirit in you. And yet at the same time, you are absent from the physical body of Jesus Christ. He's seated with Christ, it was with His Father in the heavenlies, where you will one day be. So the point of it is, is that we are of good courage because we know that Mr. Pryor is no longer absent, like all of us are. He's at home with the Lord. And so he's seeing family and friends, talking to the Old Testament and New Testament saints that we read about. He perhaps has already spoken with David, asking him about Goliath. You know, it says in 1 Samuel 17 that you ran to the battle lines. Was there any fear? and to hear what was going on in David's heart. And yet, ultimately, David would have to say, it's the Lord. The Lord was the one who gave me any strength, any courage. And then speaking with Paul and saying, okay, that thorn in the flesh, what exactly was that? And he could hear from him. And yet, Paul would say the same thing. The Lord's the only one that got me through this. If you remember, right, when I am weak, I am strong. 
Perhaps he would even speak with others. Perhaps even George Bernard. You know who he is. He wrote, he wrote a hymn called The Old Rugged Cross. That's another story for another time. And of course, he would reunite with his sweet bride. Ah, oh, what glory. And then, of course, above all things, falling at the feet of Jesus Christ, the one who paid it all for him. Number four, for a believer, death is the finishing of a race. As I mentioned, he's breasted the tape. 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I heard Mr. Pryor teach enough that he would speak of the Lord's appearing and how much he loved for it to occur even in his own life. One day, though, your race, like Mr. Pryor's, will be over. You will be with Christ. You have won. You have won because of Christ. The finishing of a race. And number five, for a believer, the last chapter is not death or even heaven, but the resurrection. You've perhaps listened to that old song, This world is not my home. That's not true. This fallen earth is not your home, but one day when the heavens and the earth come together as one, that's your eternal state. And it's going to be better than we can have ever, ever imagined. You see, because Christ resurrected from the dead, all who have trusted in Him will resurrect as well. 1 Corinthians 15.51 speaks of it. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 1 John 3.2 describes it this way, Beloved, we are God's children and now, and what we, what we will be has not yet been appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is so to run through the gamut if you will the soul goes to heaven Jonathan Edwards was a big believer that the angels would come and take the soul to heaven he gets that from the story of Lazarus and the rich man I think he's got something there but it occurs at the point of death the body stays here one day to rejoin the soul in a resurrected state. So the strange thing about it is that, uh, as Spurgeon would put it, uh, these eyes, uh, resurrected, but same, these eyes will one day look upon Jesus Christ. These hands will one day embrace our Savior. That's for a believer. If you are not in Christ today, none of these things apply to you. This has been a waste of your time, perhaps. Or perhaps not. Listen to me. If you're an unbeliever, none of these five points are true. Death awaits you as well. But your death will not bring heaven. It will not bring, bring a release from suffering. Nor seeing the Lord face to face, face, to face in joy. Your fa your, rather, your race is not over. You now have to pay for your sins. You see, it's time for you to now pay for them. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Don't worry, I'm not concluding this service with bad news. I'm concluding it with the best news you've ever heard. And that is this. First off, you were created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7 and 21, it says, the people who were created for my glory, for my name, that they would proclaim my praise. The problem with you is the same problem with me before Christ saved me. I live for me. I look out for me. Oh, yes, I love you from a distance, but ultimately it's me. And I don't live for the Lord's glory. It's, it's about me. See, the Bible makes it very clear that that's what our first parents did in the garden. They sinned. God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and of course they did. They become sinners, but perhaps even a worse part is that now we, their prodigy, are born sinners. So do you go to hell because you're born a sinner or because you sin? The answer is yes. You are born a sinner. And yet the fact is, sin is anything you think, say, or do that displeases the Lord. You're guilty. I'm guilty. The Bible puts it this way, Romans 3.23, that it makes it clear that, that we are all sinners. We have all come short of the glory of God. 
All of us. But the news gets worse. Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. You have to pay for this life. You have to. And the only way that you're going to get out of it would be a blood sacrifice. But here's the problem. Your blood sacrifice is not enough because you're wicked like me. But God demonstrates, it says in Romans 5.8, His own love towards us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Born of a virgin, He was the God-man. Lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. Obeyed all of the Old Testament perfectly. And then gave Himself up to die for the sins of the world. Three days later, God raised Him from the dead as proof positive. This is the one. No one comes to the Father but through this one. And that's why we have these Scripture verses like Ephesians 2.8-9, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. You see, you can't pay for your sins. Someone perfect has to do it for you. I came to that point several years ago that someone gave me the Gospel, the good news that you have to come to the place that you realize you were a sinner. You were deserving of the wrath of God. And you are trusting in Jesus alone, in His righteousness alone to save you. And the sweet thing about it is Christ is coming back. Yay, soon. He's going to come back and judge the world. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to make all things new. And those that are in Christ will live happily ever after. To conclude, in a moment, the family, when we're done with a prayer, y'all will exit to my right, your left. Uh, the rest of us, if you would like to pay your respects to the family, you can do so in the chapel hall right out here. We uh, request that you wear masks, uh, practice social distancing, as I saw you doing earlier. And yet my strongest encouragement to you today is come to the Savior. Come to the one that Mr. Pryor, that Howard Pryor, came to this many years ago. And he's seated with him today in glory. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for uh, Mr. Pryor's life. Thank you so much um, for him. Thank you for leading him to uh, Dallas this many years ago. Uh, for bringing about in him a desire, along with some other men, to found a church. Ultimately, it was the church that you have uh, been a part of because you founded it from the day of uh, Pentecost. And so we're thankful for him. Thank you so much for his bride. Thank you for the prodigy and the ones that you saved. Lord, I do uh, I pray for comfort for the family and friends at this time, that you would just grant them just the peace that surpasses all comprehension. And they would trust you and they would know that they're going to see their dad or they're going to see their grandpa or great-grandpa again very soon for those that are in Christ. And I pray for anybody here today that has first time really understood the gospel. Would you help them to come to the place trusting alone in Jesus Christ as their righteousness? And we'll give you thanks for what you will do, Father. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. At this time, we'll have a family rise, and you are dismissed.